famous 18th century poet, Alexander Pope, who apparently after Shakespeare is the second most quoted person in the Oxford Dictionary of quotations, famously wrote this, blessed is the man who expects nothing, for he shall never be disappointed. Encouraging, isn't it? If your goal in life is to never experience disappointment, then just don't hope for anything. Don't expect anything. Or we have this equally encouraging and perhaps only slightly less quotable wisdom of Wesley, who in the moment of, uh, in which he wields these words of wisdom is actually the dread pirate Roberts. Princess Buttercup says to him, you mock my pain. To which Wesley responds, life is pain, highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. Well, aren't we off to an encouraging start this morning? Life is pain. Don't expect anything because you won't get it. Well, it might not be very upbeat, but it is reality for all of us, isn't it? All of us here, everybody, we all deal with some uh, level, some measure of pain and disappointment because all of us have unmet expectations in our lives. We hope for things and we don't get them. And sometimes we even stop looking around the next corner. We're hoping for the next tomorrow when we might actually receive them. And usually, God is the one with whom we are disappointed. And prayer is the thing with which we are disappointed. We wonder if it even works. We accept God's invitation to us to pour out our hearts before him like water. We do that. But sometimes we feel like he doesn't hear us. He doesn't answer us. At least he doesn't answer us in the way that we hoped he would. And so eventually, our disappointment can make us give up on meaningful, devoted prayer. Well, my prayer for our time this morning is that the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, will take us to a place that allows us to just soar over our personal disappointments. My goal is not to eliminate those disappointments. They will never be eliminated on our life, in our life on earth. But my goal is that we are not discouraged by, we are not defeated by, we are not rendered prayerless by the discouragements that we experience in our lives. Because you and I must never give up on prayer. We must never give up on prayer. And that's what I want to talk about as we return this morning to Acts chapter 2. So I'm going to change it up a little bit. I'm just going to read Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And when I ask you to also turn in your Bibles to John chapter 11, I'm going to read from that passage as well. So Acts chapter 2, and then your finger in John chapter 11. And when you found your places in uh, your Bible, if you would stand so that we might hear read together the word of the living God. Acts chapter 2, verse 
42, this is the word of the Lord. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And now from John chapter 11, beginning in verse 41. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when Jesus had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Bless it to our hearts now, we pray as you promised to do when your word is read and heard. Defeat discouragement in us. Give us hope through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much. You may be seated. So I'm taking a fourth week to hover over verse 42 in general and specifically over prayer as a means of grace. Because to read, as we have read now for 11 weeks in verse 42, that the early church was devoted to prayer, we ought then to take some time to think deeply about that, to spend extended time talking about prayer. Why were they so Devoted. What motivated them? What things did the early church have to overcome in order that they might be devoted to prayer? We have to think about these things so that you and I don't potentially miss all the grace that God has for us in prayer. It's a means of grace. And the more devotedly we do it, the more we believe that God pours out his grace upon us. But the second reason that I return to prayer for a fourth week is because I continue to be so fascinated by this prayer of Jesus that we just read and at which we looked briefly last week in John chapter 11. At least for me, this prayer, this very prayer that we just read uh, helps me know where to put my disappointment, how to deal with my disappointment And not only that, but it inspires me to keep praying devotedly. So now, of course, my hope is that this prayer will have the same impact on you. So we're going to look at it this morning. We're going to consider first the context of the prayer. Secondly, we're going to consider the content of the prayer. And finally, the conviction that I pray comes from our hearts, to our hearts, because of this prayer. So first... Let's talk about the context. This is a scene in John chapter 11 of disappointment. And I think it's safe to say that it is bitter disappointment. Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, believe that Jesus could heal their sick brother. And so they send word for Jesus to come so that Jesus would heal 
their sick brother. They believed that he could. They hoped that he would, but he didn't. Jesus did not come. He did not heal. Lazarus died, and they are disappointed. When Jesus finally shows up, Lazarus has been dead and in the tomb for four days. And both Martha and Mary come to Jesus separately and say to him the exact same words. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You could have done it. You didn't do it. Disappointment with the Lord. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And then there's Lazarus who I think initially is not disappointed. Psalm 73, the psalmist sings, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. The Holy Spirit inspired this writer to to speak of the continual presence with God, a presence that death cannot break, a grip that cannot be broken. The Lord has the psalmist by his hand through life. The Lord has the psalmist by the hand through death. The Lord has a psalmist in his hand as he ushers him into his glorious presence. The Lord doesn't let us go, and so Lazarus, we conclude, must have been with the Lord in these four days. Now, I don't intend to be flippant here, but if I were Lazarus and I heard Jesus call to me, come out, I think I'd put my fingers in my ears and say, what was that, Lord? I didn't hear you. Or I would be like the petulant child. No, I don't want to do it. On some level, Or maybe on many levels. It's got to be very disappointing to have to come back to life on earth after you have seen the glory of God. But sometimes to obey the good and the perfect will of God and to take our place in that plan that he is executing, sometimes it leads to disappointment for us. But obedience must trump disappointment. And so Lazarus comes back. He's disappointed, but now his sisters are jubilant. That's the other thing about disappointment, isn't it? Whose disappointment trumps whose? If my disappointment is relieved, your disappointment may be increased. If your disappointment is relieved, my disappointment may be increased. And that's precisely the context in which we need and in which we have a Savior, one whose prayers are bigger than and beyond our own personal disappointments. Disappointment. It's part of life on earth. Precisely because earth is earth. I hope you know this. Earth is not heaven. We cannot make earth heaven. Heaven is heaven. And until we get to heaven, we're going to experience disappointment and even pain. 
So here are the questions. What impact will we allow disappointment to have on us? What will we allow disappointment to do to our prayer lives? Don't answer that, those questions until you hear the content of Jesus' prayer. The content of the prayer that he offers in the context of disappointment. Let's move on to look at that prayer. Jesus prays in verse 41. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. That you have heard me. Now, we might expect that Jesus would pray, Father, I thank you that you hear me. Right? Present tense. As he begins this prayer in this moment in time and space. But no, Jesus prays, Father, you have heard me. But Jesus hasn't offered a prayer for Lazarus yet. Or has he? And if so, when was that prayer for Lazarus' resurrection offered? Now I'm going to ask you to put on your theological wetsuit because we have to do some deep diving right now. Now that's symbolic language, which is code for this. Please don't go to sleep. Please don't go to sleep. All right, let's start diving. Have heard. In the Greek, the words that Jesus spoke, it is aorist, tense, indicative mood. Aorist, indicative. And listen, this fact is so important because the tense that Jesus uses here is probably the key. It has been for me the key that enables you, as it has me prayerfully, to to overcome disappointment with God in prayer. Here's why. The aorist tense simply states the fact that an action has happened. An action has happened. The indicative mood simply presents the action or the event as something real or certain, as an objective fact. Now, some commentators believe that here, Jesus is thanking the Father in anticipation of the miracle, as if the miracle was already an accomplished fact. I'm going to say that again. Jesus is thanking his Father here in anticipation of the miracle, as if the miracle is already an accomplished act. How can something be accomplished when it's not yet been accomplished? The tense of this verb and the answer to that question, it it takes us to a place, honestly, beyond where our human reasoning will allow us to go. It takes us to a place where a God who is beyond time dwells. Time has no restraints on God. Time can put no limitations on God. And so we remember, as we listen to Jesus pray here, that as he prays, 
He is at the same time 100% human and 100% divine. He is both at the same time. Two natures, a human nature, a divine nature, joined together in one person. The theological term for this reality, you probably know, is the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union, two natures joined in one. Now, there's a second theological term related to the hypostatic union. It's called the communicatio idiomatum. Communicatio idiomatum. Now, here are your tithe dollars at work. You pay me to learn these terms and to to know these terms. The communicato, idiomatum, simply means this. It's the communication of the properties or the communications back and forth in Jesus between the human and the divine. This is from the Westminster Confession of Faith. Chapter 8.7. Christ acts according to both natures, by each nature doing which is proper to itself. Yet by reason of the unity of the person, that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. I'm going to read this from Ligonier Ministries because it might be more helpful. You're awake? The two natures of Christ are inseparably united in the one divine person of the Son of God without confusion, mixture, or change. The divine nature remains truly divine and the human nature remains truly human, each retaining its own attributes. So, the person of Christ is omnipresent, but not according to his human nature. He's omnipresent according to his divine nature because only deity is omnipresent. Likewise, the person of Christ died on the cross, but Jesus experienced death according to his human nature, for the divine nature is not subject to decay. Communication of natures. I'm going to give you another example, a prayer example of Jesus that might make this clearer. In the upper room, On the last night of his life, Jesus prayed, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Before the world existed. So here is Jesus, the man, in real time and space. But he's praying with the knowledge of. And the longing to experience again the glory that his divine nature had eternally experienced with God the Father. But Jesus, as a man, can claim that same glory because of the hypostatic union and because of the communicatio idiomatum. Because he is both God and man at the same time. This is hard enough I thought it was going to be. <laughs> now... Let's go back to the tomb of Lazarus. The tenses that Jesus uses as he prays here leads us to to feel like he is praying out of his divine nature. Out of the nature of one 
who has dwelled with the Father from eternity past. Out of the nature of one who knows what it's like to be unbound by time. He prays as one who has seen and knows and understands eternal realities and eternal words. Words and realities like the ones that God spoke to the prophet Jeremiah. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Before he was even created, he is God beyond time. Jeremiah already appointed a prophet by God. It's a done deal. The only thing wanting is for it to be lived out in our time and our space. And so the Jesus who uses these tenses by the tomb of Lazarus, he knows the reality of the words that the Spirit of God inspired the Apostle Paul to write in Ephesians chapter 2. And I'm going to tell you, These words are going to produce awe in me, I think, I know, until the day I die. Ephesians 2, verse 6, says that God has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Listen, raised us up. There's another aorist indicative. Aorist, the action, our raising has happened. Indicative, the acting, our raising is an objective fact. He has seated us. Another, aorist, indicative. Aorist, the action, our seating has happened. Indicative, the action, our seating is an objective fact. In God's view, I'm already seated with Christ In the heavenly places. And yet, I feel like I'm standing in front of you right now. But as God sees me, somehow I'm already there. Now, maybe you're wishing right now, we're already there. Lord, take him. Take him to glory. But for a God who is outside of time and human logic and human reason, this is an accomplished fact for you. And for me, raised with him, seated with him. Is that good news? And here's why it's good news. God accomplished our raising and our seating through Jesus. Because he loves us so much. This is what he has accomplished for us. He wants you and me. He wants us seated in the heavenly places with Christ. And so Christ, because of his faithful work, because of his finished work on the cross makes it possible for us to be there. I don't know about you, but these overwhelming realities, I I can't even get my mind around them. But when I think about them, they tend to make my personal disappointments seem small in comparison to what God has already made a reality for me. In Christ. Now listen to the second part of the prayer. Jesus prays, I knew, I knew that you always hear my prayer. I knew that you always hear. So again, we anticipate that Jesus might pray, I know that you always hear me. Because it's a prayer offered in the present. But here, Jesus uses the plu perfect 
tense. And that's used to describe completed action, completed in the past. I love this so much. So the action was completed. The prayer was heard. But even that completed action was completed in the past. See how done it is? Uh, Happened in the past, completed in the past. Jesus' prayers were made and answered in the past. I can't get my mind around it. But again, it makes my personal disappointments seem smaller or at least not significant enough to deter me from from devotedly praying to one who prays like this with these tenses, with these realities that they represent. Famous Puritan pastor Richard Sibbs writes, Measure not God's love and favor by your own feeling. The sun shines as clearly in the darkest day as it does in the brightest. The difference is not in the sun, but in some clouds which hinder the manifestation of the light thereof. We, you and I, must not allow the clouds of disappointment to hinder us from seeing the God of these tenses. We must not allow the clouds of disappointment to keep us from devotedly praying to Him. And that brings me finally this morning to the conviction. Seeing the context and the content. Now, here's the conviction, which I'm convicted. I pray you are too. We must not give up on devoted prayer. We must not give up on devoted prayer. Jesus brought this prayer into the context of disappointment. And here's the rest of Jesus' prayer. Father, you always hear me. Praise God for the present tense. Just a good old present tense. I can get my mind around that. And here's why the present tense is such good news. It's good news because that means that Jesus is praying for you and for me right now. Is that good news? Here's better news. That when Jesus prays, the Father always hears. Is that good news? And Jesus wants you and me to know that. That he prays and the Father always, not sometimes, but always hears. Because he says here in this prayer, I said this on account of the people standing around me. He prays it so that we'll know it. Jesus uses the tenses he uses. He lets us know the Father always hears him to give us hope, to encourage us, to cause us to pray to the one who prays for us. Whatever request Jesus makes for you and for me as as we're gathered here together, the Father's going to hear him. And the Father is going to infallibly grant that request because Jesus only ever asks in accordance with the perfect will of God. And so whatever the outcome may be for my life or your life or our life together as the church, listen, I take the prayers that the Jesus who loves me and died for me so that I could be seated in the heavenly places with him, I'll take the prayers that he prays for me anytime. 
I'll take the prayers that he offers for me right now over my own personal prayers for myself. Even if in my earthbound, time-bound perspective, they feel very disappointing, even painful. Because I know what is already a reality for me with God because of Jesus. My life is hidden with Christ in God. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Is that good news? I cannot be disappointed with that. I cannot be disappointed with the God who has hidden me there. But I can be inspired to pray. And I hope you'll be inspired to pray as well. And that you will have hope. Have hope. Have hope. Have hope in Christ even in your disappointments. Have hope in the God of these tenses. Have hope in the Christ who prays in the context of disappointment. And keep praying. Keep praying. Keep praying devotedly. Let's pray. Lord, I'm overwhelmed. Perhaps we're all overwhelmed by the realities of who you are. No wonder you tell us in your word, Lord, that your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. You are the eternal, infinite God. We struggle so to even comprehend the the simplest things that you say to us. To comprehend a God who is outside of time and eternity. A God for whom time makes no difference. When things happen, we are so, Lord, limited to chronological time. It's all we have. It's all we know. It's what you've given us. But Lord, you're beyond that. Help us to remember these things, Lord, as we look at our own lives and our own disappointments. Help these truths of your word to enable us to put them in their proper perspective. Lord, may we never be disappointed in you. How could we be disappointed in a God who's done so much for us and a Savior who's accomplished it for us? Help us to be devoted to prayer, to coming into your presence so that we might think deeply about who you are. We might see Jesus, and because we see him, we are so graced. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.